Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn, if you will, to uh, Isaiah. We're following along this uh, prophet of God, the most uh, prolific, the most quoted prophet of the scriptures um, in, all, in all of those scriptures, and his beautiful poetic language as he tries to care for the, uh, and give the, uh, the Israelites, gives the people of God hope in the midst of some difficult times of suffering, and uh, when their backs are against the wall. And in particular, this particular passage, that it, it describes an incident where their backs were uh, dramatically against the wall, and uh, we're going to see some of how God, uh, what God brings to to encourage and to save and to, and to uh, bring about change. So if you will, I'm not going to read the entire section that you have here, but we'll start at verse 1 and follow down a few paragraphs as we get a sense of the context there. So chapter 37, verse 1. <clears throat> when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him, So that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left uh, Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting again against Libna. Now, Sennacherib received a report that Tirhakai and uh, the Cushite king of, of Egypt was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And and will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by their forefathers deliver them, the gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezpha, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Ashur? Where, where is the king of Amath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of uh, Seraphine or Hena or Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger and read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God, all the kingdoms of the earth. You have, you have made the heaven and the earth. Give ear, O Lord, hear, 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib he sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all the peoples of the land. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it? Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning, unlock the truths to our minds, uh, open, open uh, the sense of faith and and uh, affection that you, that you display to us in these, in these truths. Let it affect the way we think and feel and decide and act and live amongst our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Over the years, I've done a bunch of... Uh, I've done a bunch of different sort of outdoor adventure type things. Uh, one of the one of the one of the folks in our church, you know, uh, Amanda Cooper, is a is an adventure ed specialist. She has a master's degree in that sort of thing. She's worked at camps where they do outdoor adventure ed. Maybe you've seen these sorts of things, and they have like little little course, little obstacles you're supposed to face. There's a camp out west, uh, Ligonier Ligonier Conference facility that they have a, a, a high ropes course a high adventure course, and one of the things that you do is you do, uh, do elements up high. Um, and one of, the, one of them in particular that I particularly enjoy, and I love, I love these sorts of things, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're, you're 30 feet up and you're walking on different planks and, and leaping across different, you know, different uh, obstacles and so forth. And I, and I enjoy that sort of thing. Not everybody enjoys that sort of thing. Um, but the, the, but the, the goal is you've got, a, you've got a team of people and you're all supposed to sort of overcome these obstacles together in some capacity. And one of them in particular is a 30-foot pole. It's a 30-foot tree or, 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 uh, or um, uh, phone pole that's been, that's been uh, erected in the center of, of, a, of a clearing. And, uh, and the goal of it is, and it's got little, little spikes in it, little, little ladder steps. Uh, and the goal of it is simply... Okay, simply to climb it, stand on top of it, and then leap off of it, t- grabbing or, or touching a large balloon ball that's set out a few feet off of, you know, a bunch of feet off of it. it you can't touch it from the, from the post. You actually have to leap out to it to get it. It's just, it's, that's it. That's as easy it is. If you can climb a ladder, you can climb this 30, 30 feet up. You just climb it up, stand on the top, leap off, hit the, hit the balloon, you win. And you want everybody in your team to do that. I love this. Now the, thing that, now, now, the thing about this is, is that there is absolutely no way you can be harmed in this. Absolutely none. Uh, the first thing you do when you get there is you get an instruction on how to do it properly. 
They tell you, they take some time to tell the whole team how to do it properly. They put a, they put a, a harness on your body that keeps you, that keeps you sort of uh, well supported. And then they attach several, two, two different safety lines to that harness. And you've got teammates holding those safety lines that are launched up into the trees to keep you from falling and, you know, falling to your death. At any level, at any level. So there's absolutely no way, there's no harm can ever come to you. And so when I get to be my turn, not only am I loving this, I, I, I absolutely love this sort of thing. So I put on the harness and I get everything. So I've seen people go before me and I've seen people, and there's really no, there's really no success or failure in it. It's just, you know, you, you get to accomplish something that you've never done. And even, you know, what is success? You leapt off of a post and hit a, hit a balloon. I mean, I guess that's success. What is failure? I don't know what, what, it, it, there is no success or failure, but I don't know what failure would be. It's, I, you know, if you get to the top and you leap off, but you don't hit the balloon, I, I, that's, how's that failing? I don't know how that's failing. I, even if you climb to the top and you don't leap off, that, that's still, you probably did something you didn't do before. So it's pressing beyond your limits and, go, you know, sort of trusting the system and your, and your, and your people around you. And so I had seen people go uh, already before me. I had been given the instruction. So I had a history of people not, die, not leaping to their death. I had, a, I had a sense of the safety of the process. I trusted the, the, I trusted the ropes that were, that were well cared for. I trusted the teammates that were there holding the ropes in the process. I trusted my own abilities and how to climb this thing. And I trusted the pole. It wasn't going to suddenly fall over once I got to the top. And so I climbed to the top and I, you know, I was rather proud of myself. I, you know, I, I, moved, I got to the top so fast. It was like, except the very last step. The very last step requires you, okay, now going up, you've got the pole and you've got the stairs, the, 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 little, the little ladder steps that they give you on there to climb up, okay, and you've got the pole. The very last step, okay, the second yeah, the very last step is the one that I happen to have on my right foot, okay? And the next step is a foot, is another, like, step above. It's that much. But at the point, I'm sort of down here on the second to last step, holding the pole and the next to last step. And then I finally stand up on that last step, and I've got the, I've got the post there. And now I'm looking out, and there's nothing out there. There's no post to hold on to. And I'm not thinking about this. I'm just going, I just take it. And so I put my foot up on the next thing. And the next, the next step means you're standing on this, one, this sort of you know, 12-inch circle, top 30 feet up in the air with nothing out there to hold on to. And of course, you could, I guess I felt like it would be cheating if I'm holding on to the rope holding me. That's kind of weird. So I wanted to do it without anybody. And so I'm going, I put my foot up on the top of this, and I'm going, here we go. This is the way to go. All right, let's go. Mm. Nothing. I couldn't move. Um, I'm, and I'm good at this. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good about I love this sort of thing. There's no death. There's no problem. Everything's safe. All is good. There's no reason I shouldn't. So let me try it again. Boom. I'm setting up on this thing. Can't move. It took me two or three, and I'm, I, am, I, I am literally in my head. You have to be in my head. I don't know if you have any of you have been in this situation. Literally been in my head. In my head, I'm going, stand on your leg. Stand on your leg. Stand on your... But my, the other part of me is going, you are. You are. Well, the part of me was I'm standing on the right leg. I wasn't standing on the left leg. And, I, and there was something about that process that lost the connection between... 
my desires and my movement. And, and, and it was that connection of trust your leg, trust the ropes, trust the experience. And that, once I finally realized what I was doing, that I was holding on to me a little bit, my, the firmness of my right leg and that last step, when I finally trusted the experience and the people and everything that was out there, then I, then I took, took a big breath and I go, Whoa! and I stood. And it was exhilarating. And then I, the ball's out, and the next piece was easy, for me at least. Because then I just go, okay, here we go. And I leapt out and touched the ball. And was caught by my teammates and was lowered to the ground. And then we, when everybody does all their pieces, then we sit around and we talk about what the hardest parts were. The reason I, I share that story is because those sorts of exercises um, are intentional ways, and they're used in those contexts to intentionally illustrate how faith turns into action, how trust is what's keeping us from making choices. That it's not about duty. It's not about, it's not about uh, objective ideas and truth. It's not about the sense of personal ability and, 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 and uh, mental fortitude. It's about the, 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 that all of life is this way, and especially in these intentional ways. Now, this, the, we could examine, we could examine, and part of, part of what growth groups are doing and part of what discipleship is doing, but a lot of what counseling is doing when I do it in, in my life and what counselors are doing is helping people to see helping people to process the experiences in their lives and helping them to realize how faith, how trust is leading, can lead to positive action, can lead to, to bold action, to risk-taking, and that how, how poor trust has led to poor choices has, or leads to unfaithful activity it, because faith is the driving, faith and trust is the driving force in our lives. What you believe, what you believe is what you decide, is the direction you move. The Bible says it this way, as a man thinks, so shall he become. As I'm processing, as I'm believing, as I'm, and all that thinking that, that goes on, all that goes on in my mind, all the ways that I process, leads to, that, to lead, leads to that idea. And in this instance, in this particular passage, the reason I bring that up is because it's, because Hezekiah's back is against the wall. The, the setting of the, the setting of it is, is the people of God, King Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings that Israel's ever, ever, ever had since the days of David. David's the greatest king. And then as the, as the, as the kingdom is divided through war and through, and through difficulty, uh, Hezekiah rises up and he becomes one of the greatest kings. Young, young king at the time. He's only probably in his 30s at this point. But he's a young king, very, very committed to, to the Lord. And... Um, uh, the people of God are, are encamped, and around them then comes Assyria. And Assyria was this bulldozing force through the Middle East at the time. And they were just mowing down uh, nations. And, and uh, the king, King Sennacherib of Assyria, he, he tells you the list of things that I couldn't pronounce of the people that, and of the nations that they were just mowing down. And so there he's mowing down different nations and just destroying di peoples and... Uh, and he's on his way, you know, he's in the middle of war. You know, you notice that it says in, uh, it says in verse uh, 8, it says that his field commander found out that the king of Assyria had left this one area, Lachish, 
and withdrew and then found that the king was fighting against Libna, okay? And then while he's fighting Libna, he gets, he gets word that Egypt's about to come out and they want to they wanna have a go. And so he's dealing with war on a number of, of fronts and he sends word to Israel while he's at war with Libna, preparing for war with Egypt, and he says, oh, and I'm after you too. I'm coming your way. As soon as I'm done with Libna, I'm going to eat them up. Then I'm going to come eat up Egypt, and then I'm going to come eat up you. Just wanted to send word in advance that we're on our way, and don't worry about your God, because I've mowed down all their gods too. Don't try, don't. And so he begins to insult the people of Israel and their backs are against the wall with great fear. Uh, when it says to Hezekiah in the beginning of the chapter that he tore his clothes, he's like, that's, you know, there's a sense where he's wringing his hands, he's pulling his hair out, he's, 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 uh, he's, at his, he's at a loss. He has no other way. He's just sort of in the middle of his agony. He's just sort of praying and tearing his clothes and the people of God are in sackcloth. It was a, that was a rough clothing that they wore in order to, to go into mourning and to go, it was, the, it was the clothing of mourning about, you know, what are we going to do? You know, and, and he brings up, he says, this is just like ha- having childbirth and they, can't, and they can't give birth. I know what that's like. You ever ha- you, I, I don't personally know what it's like. I don't know what it's like. Before you, before, forgive me, before you get, don't, don't rush the stage. I don't know personally what it's like, but I have witnessed it. Uh, it was our first child. Becky was in labor for like 22 hours. Um, and I know some have been longer and some have been shorter, but don't rush the stage. It, everybody's got their own story, and it's valid. But, m- but our story was that 22 hours of labor, tw- two hours of active labor, and, and I don't know what it was. Maybe it was hour 15. I come out. They're, they're about, finally found the anesthesiologist to get whatever she was supposed to get, and then she couldn't get it at the time. I don't know how that... I think that's the story, right? And so... Uh, I come out because they think they're going to be able to do it. And so you got to leave the room. So I leave the room and my, my, my mothers, my mom and my mother-in-law were in the waiting room and I fell to my knees in tears and, and they're there and they go, what's wrong? What's wrong? Of course, that's not what you want your son to do when you come out of the labor and deliver room <laughs> with your first child. And, uh, and I go, no, every, everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm, I'm in tears. I just can't help her. I can't. I can't help her. I can't make this go away. And she's, a, she's trying to have a child, and the child wouldn't come out. I mean, it will come out eventually. But it, it's like, and so I get Sennacherib's illustration here. We're to the place where I, we're just frustrated. It just won't happen. I can't figure out what to do. And I was at a, I was at a loss to how to help her in this situation. And then that, I'm on the ground. I'm crying. And that's the place where I'd be tearing my tearing my clothes and going, what are we going to do about this? I just want to be able to help. And, and Hezekiah goes and gets Isaiah to pray. And what are we going to do, Isaiah? And Isaiah says, here's what God says. Don't worry about the insults. Just trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I'm going to deliver him. As a matter of fact, here's what I'm, I'm going to tell you my plan. I'm going to come right out. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to put a spear in his head and he's going to withdraw and he's going to go home. And then he's going to get killed when he gets home. Does that seem reasonable based on this bulldozing machine that's coming around? That doesn't make logical sense. 
He's asking them to believe in something that was absolutely harebrained. That's a harebrained scheme. He's going to, okay, God, you're going to what? You're going to, you're going to put a spirit in his head that's going to make him want to go back home. And then when he gets back there, you're going to cut him off. You're going to cut him down with a sword. Here's, when he hears a certain report, this is in verse 7, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down. Okay. And then later on, and then later on, I love how God, this is the, this is the wonder of the poetry of Isaiah. And, and Isaiah, this is what happens when you, when, you, when you trust and you fall in love with somebody. You start writing poems. I'm not a poet. But I tell you, I wrote some poetry when, I, when Becky and I were dating. Why? Because you're, like, you're saying stuff that, that the words, I love you, can't quite... You know, I'm not an artist. I did, I did some art. I did some little paintings for her. She still has one on her dresser that I have on there. And it, has a, and it has like a little poem, I think. I don't even know what the poem is. I haven't read it in a bunch of time. But it's something about I love you. And I'm going, why, why, why am I doing, I'm not an artist, but I'm, draw, I'm drawing things and I'm, and I'm, I'm doing words. Why, why is poetry important? Because poetry says things that you can't communicate with just the word, with just the facts. Okay. It's like, you know, it's the opposite of the story about the man who's, who's they go into counseling and the, and the wife says, well, he never, I've been, we've been married for 20 years and he just never says he loves me. He says, well, I told you I loved you when I got married and if that ever changes, I'll let you know. No, I, we, it's, it's this, I, that we need this sense of uh, when the words aren't, when the words, when the facts aren't adequate, I need more. I need something. And poetry does that. And Isaiah, when he, when, when he believes what God's doing, God's going to send a spirit through a report to Zechariah. He's going to go back home and he'll have him cut down by the sword. And then here's the poem that comes out of his mouth. This is in verse, uh, this is in verse 20. Let me get it. 21, 22. He says, this is the word of the Lord against, against the king of Assyria. The ver- I, and I love the beauty of this. Take a minute to read the poem. We didn't read all of it, but here's the opening, here's the opening cha- challenge. And I want to give you a little image. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. All right. We'll just, that's, that's the imagery of the poetry. Did, are you getting it? The virgin daughter. There could not be anyone more vulnerable in the kingdom of the Middle East than a virgin daughter. They have no one. They are the, they are the purest of pure, and they, are the, the, they, are, they have no capacity whatsoever. They don't have a husband. They don't have any property. They don't have anything. And, here, and, even, and what he's saying is the little children who have nothing are going to mock him. He mocks me. He mocks me. He's a big, big old king, thinks he has everything. What am I, this, is, this is how it's going to be in the end. The little children, the little girls are going to mock you. And they're going to mock you like... Did I give you that image? That's the image. They're going to toss their heads when you flee. Yeah, I've seen that done. I've had it done to me. It's really offensive. That's the imagery that Isaiah wanted the people of God. This is how God understood. This is what he says. Don't pay no never mind to these insults. Don't listen to all this, this, this falderall. God, this is how God's going to do this. And you can trust me in this. And Isaiah believed that and he's writing poetry about it. Hezekiah is praying 
praying like mad. I'm not sure where has, I'm not sure how, le, how deep Hezekiah's faith was. I mean, he, he certainly does believe it. He's not writing poetry about it, but he's, he's sort of hoping and trusting and, 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 you know, latching onto what he can. And prayer is the best way to do that when you, can, when you don't, when you're not writing poetry, pray. The reason that it's hard to trust God in these ways, I think, uh, when your back's against the wall, is, uh, and, is that the king, the king of Assyria taps into... There's three kinds of ways that, we, that, our, that our trust is undermined, I think. That when we... I mean, I think we... Like me, when I'm climbing the pole, I, I, the pole to get to the to do this adventure, I I, I want to do it. I'm good at it. I, I really want to do. I want to trust. You ever been in a situation where I want to trust God? I just you know, I, but you find yourself difficult to trust Him to have that sense of trust occur. When I get to the top of the pole, I wanted to stand on my foot. I just I couldn't the moment because I hadn't understood where my trust was breaking down. And where trust breaks down, we see in, in, a little bit in, the, in some of the insults that, that's, that Sennacherib gave to Israel. It's in the previous chapter, and I'm going to draw just a couple of verses from it. I didn't want to take the time to read it. But it, it, one, of the ways, one of the ways that our trust is undermined is that circumstances and people and, 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 a, and a failed failed filter about how we understand the world, a bad paradigm, cause us to doubt the truth about God. Um, uh, one of the things that, that uh, Sennacherib says is, this is what the king of Syria says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot, your God cannot deliver you. Cannot deliver you. He's not able to deliver you. And I think that your trust and my trust are undermined either by, the, by, by two different aspects. They're undermined that our doubt rises when we think God can't do something or that God won't do something. That he is unable or unwilling. When you and I, when you and I look at our lives and we go, well, he's just not, this is just not what he does these days. He doesn't, he just doesn't save us from this immense debt, especially when it's my responsibility. I got us into this debt and, the, and my backs against, our backs against the wall. So there's no sense believing that God can get us out of this debt because he's just, he just doesn't do that in modern times. He's just not capable. This is a financial thing. He does spiritual things. The God, Christianity and the gospel are for spiritual heart things. They're not for actual things. God doesn't save people from debt. God doesn't do that kind of... And these are, the, these are the lies that go through the mind that undermine our faith. Or the, the counter one, and, and debt's a good one like that, because a lot of times we look at it and go, and, you know, and, maybe he, and maybe he could, and maybe he would, but I'm the one that got us here. I did this. I was irresponsible. I was, I was too frivolous, or I did somehow made a mistake, or I didn't read it properly, or somehow I, you know, we overextend it, Some, whatever it is, and you're, and you're going, and so therefore, God might do it, but he won't do it now because I'm responsible. And so now, not only is he not able, he, he's not willing. Those are lies. What is God able to do for you? He is able to do 
all things. He's able to erase the record of your wrongs. He is able to take the, the wrath of your judgment. He is able to make you favorable in his sight. That's a much harder thing for God to do than simply erase the physical debts you have. And we know that he's able to do that because of this. And he was willing to do it even when you're guilty of it. Because at no time were you ever not guilty. People come into my office and say, well, God, you know, I've done this horrible thing, whatever that horrible thing is, insert X, whether it's, whether it's I, I've been unfaithful or I've, I've been, uh, I've been pr- uh, promiscuous or I've been, uh, you know, sort of irresponsible or I've, or I've stolen or I've, or I've cheated in some fashion or, you know, whatever the big things are that you think of in your life. And I, and I go, but God well, you know, won't, won't, be, won't help me now because of this. I'm so, I'm so shameful, ashamed and I'm so unworthy of this sort of thing. And my question, my answer to that is always, in every instance, I'm, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. My answer to that, you come to me with that, and we'll talk about it. I want you to come to me with these issues. But my answer to that is always, what made you think you were worthy before you did that? Now, that's not, I don't mean to insult you when I say that. But there is a sense where if the big sin, the big, the big black mark you've done, if that makes you feel unworthy, then you really didn't have an understanding of the depth of your heart. You were unworthy that before then, and you're still unworthy. The Jesus' death covered you then, and it will cover you now. He took away your shame then, and he's going to take away your shame now. So any, any other idea is undermining your faith, and it's keeping you from stepping on top of the pole. Believing that God, that your back is against the wall because of debt or divorce or death, that your back is against the wall, whatever the circumstances are, or the fact that you can't find a spouse or that you can't have the children you want or that because you're, you're in a broken relationship with someone you can't repair, your back is against the wall. And the doubt that your mind and the world present that God can't do it or he won't do it is utter lies and that undermines our, our trust in him. The second thing that we see that, uh, that, that he does to undermine them is he says, uh, in, in this, is in, this is in the other chapter, verse, uh, verse uh, 16, he says, uh, make peace with me. This is, the, this, is God of, this is the king of Assyria talking. Make peace with me and come out to me and then every one of you will eat from your own vine and your fig tree and drink your water from your own cistern. Another reason, another when our back is against the wall through circumstances, another reason that your faith in Christ is your faith in the gospel of grace is undermined is because your mind and the and the and the thing the thing the solution or the thing that I might put my trust in to solve the problem bribes me to think that if I go down that road, and it's usually a sinful road, that if I go down that road it'll get easier. Rather than staying in the hardship and trusting God. Trusting God isn't always at the front end. It's the, it's the, it's the what, what does the poem go? Here, we're, we're quoting poetry again. It's the road less traveled. Remember the way? Two, two, two roads diverged in a woods. And one looked bright and sunny and well-traveled and peaceful and, 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 uh, and, and, and uh, clear-cut. And the other one was a little hazy and darker and a little less organized. Yeah, he says, well, I... Uh, what, what, I, don't know the, I don't know the words exactly, but I t- took the road less traveled by. And then in the end, I think he says, and have found it to be 
the difference or found it to be better. You'll, you're Googling it now. Let me know later. <laughs> Trusting God is the road less traveled because we don't trust God. We trust ourselves. We trust in my abilities. We trust the circumstances. We trust what people are saying. We trust the bribes in my mind. The bribe is if I go down the road that's, mo- that's really tr- well-traveled, then that, that, and this is the bribe of any, of any kind of thing, any, any sin is always bribing you, that if you go down this, whatever the coping mechanism is, when your back's against the wall, you are going to be tempted to a coping mechanism. And the coping mechanism is an attempt to alleviate the, the, the suffering I'm in by by an anesthesia that promises that that will be solved when it's only numbing you to the circumstances. It's not providing any hope. It's promising hope, but it's only anesthesia for the for numbing power for the, for the moment you're in. When I'm stressed, when I, and, and this, is a, this is a small, this is a small uh, back-against-the-wall situation. When I'm stressed about my work week and I've got a, a thousand things to do, which happens on occasion, just like anybody else, when there's a thousand things to do and a thousand people to deal with, and, and, and I, or it feels like a thousand. It's never a thousand, but it's, you know, it feels like a thousand. I get overwhelmed in that sort of thing. You know, what, you know what sometimes I catch myself doing? Organizing my bookshelves in my office. Well, that's a wonderful thing. It's a one, I mean, it's wonderful. I like order. My, my office looks neat. My books are all in alphabetical, whatever. I've taken up 30, 40 minutes, five, hour. Has that helped me do anything that's stressing me except anesthetize me to the strain of it rather than living in it and trusting that if I step, God says, I've given you no more to do today than is, the, the gospel says, Jesus says, I've given you no more to do today than, than, you, than you are able to do with me. I'm not judging you. All is well. And as a matter of fact, all that stuff that is launched against you, that legion of things that's out there uh, telling you that you're a failure and that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you and that this is going to be the, the wreck of you, whatever, even if that's human stress and strain from your job perspective, um, all that stress that's out there, just like the king of Assyria saying, I'm going to eat you up Rather than be eaten up, God says, trust me, I'm going to put a spirit in its thinking and it's going to go back home and then I'm going to cut it down. If I believe that about the things of my world, if you believe that about the strains that you're dealing with day to day and when, the, when your back is against the wall, no matter how severe that is, then you might step towards it and go, And you don't need to straighten your bookshelves. You don't need to overeat. You don't need the various other coping mechanisms we accomplish because our trust is undermined by that bribery, by that sense of, if you do this, you'll get better. If you do this, I'll give you your own sister. And if you do this, life will be easy. That bribery is a lie, just like the lies that God can't and won't. The other way that we see the king undermining their faith, is he says, uh, he says, has the God of any of the other nations ever delivered, the land, delivered their land from the hands? Where are the gods of Amoth, Arped, on all the names that I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't pronounce? He says, uh, he says, where are their gods? And what, he's, what the culture does is says, look at how the culture operates. Look at how, look, at, it's not rational. This is, it, it's, it's not saying, it's not rational for you to believe in God. 
This is, it's not reasonable for you to, to put your faith in this direction. Don't, don't, if you think of it, you know, what you need to put your faith in is circumstances, science, the reliability of people, your own abilities, the methods, strategies. This is how we get things done in a modern world. This is what Sennacherib is saying to the people. This is the lie. The lie, the lie that undermines our faith is, is saying it's not rational to trust in God. It's not rational to think, don't, don't you know. Uh, <laughs> the, every time God's people stick their neck out for Jesus, for God, the people around them, the culture around them goes, you are out of your mind. You're absolutely crazy, Noah. What are you doing? God, God told you to build a boat in the middle of a desert? What are you doing? <laughs> You're an absolute idiot. Yeah. When we, and when I say stick out your neck for God, I, what I'm, that's faith. I'm, I'm trusting in what he says. I'm writing poetry about what he thinks is true and what he's told me and the promises that he gives me and letting that guide my thinking. And it's going to make the world around you think you're unra- irrational. When's the last time you stuck your neck out and you got pushback from the people in your life or even from your own mind, even from your old nature going, this doesn't seem rationally good. Don't do crazy things. You've got your heads just so high in the sky. You're no earthly good. Wait, it's always, there's always, God never asks us to do something that is, that is uh, outside the realm of faith and, and unreasonable in those respects. Because God is a very reasonable God. But if God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send him home, he's going to get killed when he gets there, don't worry. The little girls are going to mock him. The teenage girls are going to flip their hair. All is well. If, that's, if he says that's true, then, what's the, then, what, then which is, what, is the nat, what is the rational thing to do? The rational thing to do is to step into that direction. But these are the things that undercut, that undercut our faith. But if we can notice them, if we notice those things, we can, we can undermine the undermining. We can, we can doubt our doubts. We can undermine the irrational ideas. We can bring truth to the lies, and it will sustain, it will, it will answer our truth. Okay, now here's, what, here's the end of the story. Here's what turns it all around. Then, this is in verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all kinds of dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp, withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, his sons, blah, blah, and blah, blah, cut him down with a sword. <laughs> exactly what God said. And the, you see the little flourish God put on the end of it? I mean, he could have killed him in his sleep. He could have killed him while he's walking. His sons could have killed him while he's walking down the, walking down the street. Could have killed him while he went to the grocery store. No. You know, do, do you get the little flourish God throws in at the end, the little, the little hair flip at the end? He kills him while he's worshiping his God and says, where's your God now? How you like them apples? In a sense. 
Yeah. So God does one better in the, in the end. God delivered his people, and this is how it goes. Now, here's the thing that changes this story. The thing that turns everything around is what is the angel of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord steps into the, in the equation, everything's delivered. The angel of the Lord is, is a code phrase. It's an Old Testament code phrase for the second person of the Trinity, for the person of Jesus before he was born. Jesus, before he was born, shows up. The angel of the Lord. This is not just an angel. This is the angel of the Lord who received worship, who authored power, who said things ex nihilo, who said things out of his own ability. He was God himself. The angel of the Lord, the person of Jesus pre-incarnate, comes down and, and annihilates all the threats that, that, that were up against his people. Jesus, when he shows up in our lives, annihilates all of our threats. and was willing to let his back be against the wall so that you would never be in a condition where your back's against the wall. And that you can rely upon his promises and his hope and his truth that he will deliver you in those moments. He w- and he can do the things he says he can do and that, he, and that you can be a part of the hair flipping team at your deliverance. Now, the hard part about this is it, it's when, when, when the threats, when the physical threats are, are washed away, when, when, the, when my back, when the debt is removed, when the divorce, comes, when the divorce gets through and we're all healthy and safe, when the, when the children survive, when I find the man or the woman that I've really been hoping for, when the children get born that I was hoping for, when I get the job and the success, when all that happens, that's wonderful, okay? And, and trust is... is Trust is engendered when God says yes. What about trust when God says no? It's easy in a sense, it's easier in a sense that God would demonstrate to the, to the people around me his existence that God would demonstrate to the people in the world around me that he exists and that he loves when he says yes to me. Okay, do you get what I'm saying? That when God says yes to you, the world says, whoa, God, when God does that irrational thing, when God shows up in your life when your back's against the wall and God shows up and the debt is gone and the relationship is mended and the job is had and the way is smoothed and the tears are dried, and the family is developed. When, that, when God shows up and says yes, then and in an, irrash, an irrational or unreasonable, in an unreasonable way, the world and the culture around and the people in your life go, oh my gosh, what an amazing, they might in their own heart, they might go, wow, what an amazing thing. But are you maybe willing, are you and I willing to, to let God demonstrate his existence, his grace, and his love to a watching world by him saying no to you for what you're praying for, but that it would lead you still to hope, to grace, to peace, to patience. Are you as willing for that great thing as you would be for him to deliver you from the thing? So maybe God doesn't remove your debt. 
but he gives you confidence in the midst of it, that you're trusting him in the midst of it to say, I'm going to remain hopeful. I'm not going to get bitter and angry at the world. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to lash out at my children and my family. I'm not going to act as if money is everything. I'm not going to change the way I live uh, because I have this huge debt. In terms of, in terms, I'm, I'm going to repent of the things I need to, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to become some sort of miser and sort of wrapped up in my, in my, in my, you know, money and gripping it so tightly, you know. But I'm going to stay loose. I'm going to stay peaceful. I'm going to still trust God for my daily bread. That, because those things, love. Joy in the midst of that, hope in the midst of that, peace in the midst of that. Do you know what those things are? The fruit of the Spirit. How do we know the Spirit's in your life? He shows up by His fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the evidences. These are some of the, the definable evidences that the Spirit of God is in you. When these things show up, now, they can show up when God says yes, and they're often very, when God says yes, and my $30,000 in debt is removed by some miraculous, you know, person I didn't know died, and I get this check that I didn't expect to have, and 30000 is gone, and you are ecstatic, and you are filled with a sense of freedom and hope and satisfaction and peace, and you're telling the story to everybody. But if God says no, and you take the long road to restoration, in order that God might demonstrate to a world that he can produce grace, faith, joy, peace, self-control, that way too, that's still his grace. That's still operative. That's what God, and Jesus, here's the thing. Jesus, Jesus trusted God even when he told him, I, you, I'm not going to restore you. I'm going to destroy you. The cross is all about Jesus, God saying to Jesus, I, I'm not going to redeem what your life, I'm going, to, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to crush you. Will you trust me? Jesus said in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Lord, what, what my desire is, my desire at this point, I'm struggling with this sort of battle of the will, is that what I would want is not to have to go down this road of abandonment, and I'd like there to be another way, and if there is, let's find that, but if not, your will better than my will. I want what you want rather than what I want. And so then he stood up and he went, set his heart like flint towards the cross. And in the end, God says, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what I want and it's better, but it's going to require you to be crushed and then raised and everything will become a footstool under your feet. And Jesus says, this is the wake of his life with his children. Even if he says no, most often he says yes. But sometimes he says no, and those are the times that he, when Job, this is the story of Job. It's the story of he had it all. God was giving him his grace, and God was saying yes, and then God, and then God says, I have no, I have no, I have no worry. My, my servant Job's great. He's, he trusts me. He'll be great either way. So he took it away. He let it go. And, God, and then Job, as he's getting these tests, he says, shall I, shall I receive blessing but not curse from him? Shall, shall my lips praise him for blessing but not praise him for these moments of struggle? Because they all come from the hand of the Lord. For, for his glory, 
not to punish Job. He had a lot of friends telling him, you're doing, this is because you've done something wrong. Admit it. And Job goes, no, this is not how God operates. He's not, he, I am not culpable for this. The, the, the redemption of God covers this. So there's got to be something else. And so we trust him when he says yes. We trust him when he says no. Either way, that trust is producing a harvest of fruit a harvest of deliverance and making his children, his people, full of joy, hope, and satisfaction because of what the angel of the Lord does. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Pray that you'd teach us the value of these things, that, 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 that it is often our trust that leads us to false choices, poor choices, but also, Lord, our trust will empower us to live uh, the, the poetic life as we, as we examine it, as we, as we place the roots of our hearts in you and what you've done for us, that we, can, that we can laugh at the circumstances, that we can mock at the, at the things that are putting our back against the wall, that we flip our hair to whatever it is that threatens us because you have promised to deliver with your yes and to deliver with your no. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.